Two points of personal privilege, first of all. For those of you who remember my kids at family conference at Canyon Meadows years ago, I just happened to have along some pictures of my kids and their spouses and their kids. Uh, and uh, I will uh, bore you to no end if you ask me to see the pictures. Jane put some together actually yesterday morning. Uh, she would have given the concise form, but equally proud and grateful to the Lord for all that he's doing in their lives. But happy to show you with those. I have them along with me. Um, secondly, remember, my memories of Blue Ridge Bible Conference are 25 years old or so. But when I hear Alan and see him leading singing up here, I kind of see Dwight Poundstone a little bit. Uh, handsome, great voice, curly Light hair. I know Alan's is blonde. Not there's no gray in it, but Dwight was silver. But uh, anyway, uh, and I remember one thing, and this is a hint for Alan. <clears throat> I remember that it was at the family conference that our family first was introduced to number 271. How sweet and awful is the place. So just I I was hoping it would still be. So uh, just looking forward to that. Just wanted to say that. So. Um, I'm going to lead us in a brief prayer now, actually using uh, that third verse that we just sang, uh, the, taken from Psalm 126, because I think it just fits so beautifully what we're going to be thinking about in our two morning sessions this morning. Um, the first part of this session, if you look at your outline in the booklet, uh, is a, a little bit more foundation laying, and uh, some, of what, some of which I reserved for this morning. Uh, when the, the heavy-duty students are here only. Now, not that the kids aren't heavy-duty students as well, but I want to talk a little bit more about how to read Acts and how to connect it with our experience. And so that's the first page. And then we will turn to a particular passage uh, at the end of Acts 1. We talked about it at least very briefly last night, but I want to go into more depth in this first session, which means I have to budget our time well. Then we'll have our coffee break and then... We'll come back in the second session to look at the outpouring of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost and all that that means uh, this morning. So it's a very full morning ahead of us, um, and I'm going to do my best to be a good steward of our time so that we can see some of these great themes together. Uh, Let me lead us in prayer, uh, as I mentioned, from that setting of Psalm 126 uh, briefly. Lord, again refresh us with thy reviving love. And be thy blessing poured in mercy from above. By grace, revive our hearts again as streams refreshed by copious rain. Send your Spirit, the life-giving water that brings fruitfulness to the dry ground. Send him among us in his fullness and his power. We thank you that he sustains our lives day by day. We pray that he will take his word and use it to deepen and build our faith and our trust in Jesus, to turn our hearts and eyes to Him, to Jesus Christ, uh, who is building His church by His Word and by His Spirit. We pray in His name. Amen. All right, let me talk a little bit about ways to look at Acts. We're going to read the text that we're going to focus on, sort of in the middle of this Uh, this morning's session uh, from the end of Acts 1. You see in the outline that first point that Acts is the light in the tunnel. Uh, I 
found that image in some book on Acts. I thought I knew the book I had found it from, and I've gone through that book again and again and cannot find the quote. And I always like to give due credit to those whose words I've stolen, because uh, I give my students a hard time if they don't do the same, and I can't find where it comes from. It's not mine. If you know where it came from, let me know so I can give due credit. But it's a wonderful picture. Uh, think of, well, my wife and I like murder mysteries. Uh, you know, So th- think of uh, a, a group of people on a train, and the train is going into a tunnel in a deep, uh, deep into a mountain, uh, and uh, not only does all the daylight cut out, but in the middle of the tunnel, all the lights cut out in the train. And uh, You've seen the picture at the beginning of everybody and where they're seated. Uh, in the darkness, there's a shot in the dark, and when the train emerges from the other end of the tunnel, there's a dead body on the floor, and everyone is sitting in a different place. Something happened in that tunnel, but, and you know to whom it happened, <laughs> If you can identify the dead body. But who done it is a mystery if there's no light in the tunnel. Uh, and whoever the author was that I'm now quoting uh, said, Acts is kind of that light that helps us to understand if we didn't have that light in the tunnel, we would be very puzzled. Another way we could illustrate it, and then I'll give you some of the points uh, that, that I'm thinking of is uh, imagine that you know how to read the English language, but you've never run across a New Testament. And you're walking along the street, and you see a copy of the New Testament just on the, on the ground. Somebody's discarded it. It's pretty beat up. The cover's off. Uh, but almost all the pages are there, except that there's one, what the publishers call one signature, that is one batch of pages that have fallen out. And when I was uh, young, I... Got part, it was part of a paperback book club that where you could buy uh, classics for like 25 cents a piece. They'd send you a whole bunch, and uh, you knew once you got them why they only cost 25 cents, because uh, you'd start to read through them, and pages would start to fall out right and left. So New Testaments are not usually bound so poorly, but imagine it. Uh, the only section that's fallen out is the book of Acts, as it turns out. And so... Never having met the New Testament before, you start to read at the beginning, as you should, and you read through Matthew, and then you read through Mark, and you realize he's telling sort of the same story as Matthew, but he's left some things out, perhaps, or he's added some more detail than Matthew gives, and then you get to Luke, and you read it all the way through Luke, and read John, and he's a little different. It's the same Jesus, but he tells you different stories from a different angle of the life of Jesus, and then you read the book of Romans, and suddenly you're puzzled. Because as you came to the end of the Gospels, one by one, you were all essentially at the same place. Jesus had been raised from the dead. Something new was going to happen now. Twelve men, no, eleven. One had been a traitor. One had turned away from Jesus. Eleven men, perhaps some others, were uh, there at the end as the core of the church. But you turn to the first page of the book of Romans and you have... This letter, written by a fellow named Paul, who's he? Written to a group of people who obviously believe in Jesus as the Messiah, in Rome of all places. What happened? 
in those missing pages. How did this change? Where did this Paul come from? You read all the way through his letters and you discover in Galatians and Philippians that he persecuted the church. He tells you that. And you begin to wonder. And he says some things about how he came to be a hater of the gospel, from being a hater of the gospel to being a preacher of the gospel. But again, how did that really happen? You don't know. And even as you turn the page from John 21 to Romans 1, perhaps one of the things that would have puzzled you is that you remember that Matthew and Mark and Luke had all in the early chapters talked about the ministry of John the Baptizer, this prophet who appeared on the scene after centuries of God's silence, not having sent a prophet to his people. But John's message was, somebody's coming after me, more powerful than I am, far more worthy of honor than I am. I'm not even worthy to untie the, 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 uh, unlatch his sandal. And he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. You get to the end of Matthew, the end of Mark, the end of Luke, and it's obvious that Jesus is that more powerful, more worthy one, but Jesus hasn't baptized anybody in the Holy Spirit. The one thing, yes, I know, John says Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John's Gospel shows us that John the Baptist also pointed to Jesus' sacrifice, And so that was accomplished within the context narrated in the gospel. But the thing, the gospels, but the thing that Matthew and Mark and Luke all say was central to John the baptizer's prediction of Jesus, that he would send the Spirit in power on his church, that thing hasn't happened at the end of the gospels. So again, you're kind of left wondering, because Paul certainly talks a lot about the power and the work of the Holy Spirit in the church. When did Jesus do it? When did he do that thing that John the baptizer led his uh, hearers to expect that Jesus would do? And of course, as you read again through Paul's letters, you read not only a letter to Rome, the capital of the great, mighty Roman Empire, but you read read letters to Corinth, uh, a major urban uh, trading center in the southern part of Greece and Achaia, Ephesus, uh, site of one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the great uh, temple to Artemis, a whole region of central, what we now call Turkey, was then known as Galatia or Asia Minor. Uh, Other places, how did the gospel get to all these places? All these questions. Uh, And it's evident that although there's still, still some dispute about this, that Gentiles, who had not converted to Judaism by being circumcised, and as we know from other sources outside the New Testament, they would need to be circumcised and submit to a washing, a kind of baptism, and, and send or bring an offering to the temple in Jerusalem, had not converted to Judaism. Gentiles are full members of the New, New Testament church now. That's, dis- that's debated. That's disputed. Paul has to answer those who accuse, uh, who, who uh, oppose that in Galatia and Philippi, uh, Philippi and elsewhere. But uh, somehow they got accepted into the church. How did that happen? As well. A lot of questions that we need the book of Acts to answer for us. So it's a wonderful provision of God the Holy Spirit to have inspired 
I'm convinced Luke, he doesn't give us his name, but the early tradition identifies uh, the author of both the third gospel and Acts with Luke, the physician, close companion of the Apostle Paul. The so-called we sections of the book of Acts, that's not French for yes, we. No, it's the English we. The sections where suddenly the narrator of the book of Acts in chapter 16 and at various points from there on out, uh, including the trip, trip to Rome, the author suddenly switches from sort of third-person description, Paul went here, they went there, to first-person description. We arrived at Philippi. We did this, we did that. A clue that the narrator, the author, is present in those events. He's part of Paul's team. All of those confirm, I think, that it was Luke um, who wrote these two books. Uh, for Theophilus, uh, we don't know Theophilus other than what, how he's described. He's given a title by Luke, most excellent at the beginning of the gospel, which may indicate that he's a high, relatively high-ranking government official. That particular term was used in that way. Um, he's obviously somebody who's been taught the Christian gospel because Luke says in his gospel, I've written to confirm to you to show you the, the assurance, the certainty of the things in which you have been, well, actually the word that he uses is the word that we use as catechized now. The Greek word is a little wider than that. It can talk about reports more generally, but I'm convinced that Theophilus was one who had been taught the Christian faith, but needed more. He had not had, apparently, direct contact with the apostles, and so Luke, under the inspiration of the Spirit, is giving him now in written form, that apostolic testimony to Jesus' words and Jesus' deeds. So it's a great gift that God has given us in the book of Acts. But we do face the question, point two on your outline, how do we connect what we read in the book of Acts with our life in 2007? Acts is not a manual for doing church. It's not a book of church order. It's not a manual of discipline, a form of government, a book or a directory for worship. It's a narrative of what God has done in founding the church in its new covenant form, or as I said last night, in bringing His church, His people, from old covenant promise into new covenant fulfillment form. It's historical narrative. It's always a little challenging to discern what God wants us to take away from historical narrative in terms of our response to it. When we read in the epistles, in the letters, Paul teaching doctrine, we know we're supposed to believe that doctrine. When he gives us instruction as to how we're to live in response to the gospel, how to live out our gratitude and obedience, we know that we're to obey those commands. But historical narrative is a little bit different. When we read about people doing actions, are we supposed to imitate them or not imitate them? Sometimes it, it's not so hard. I mean, you read in the book of Acts about the hypocrisy and the greed of Ananias and Sapphira, and it's, it's pretty easy to conclude that we're not supposed to imitate that. That's not, you know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to say, this is bad, uh, you know. They get struck dead by the sovereign work of God, this is probably not what you want to imitate. Uh, but when you read other biblical narratives in which the Holy Spirit, in the way He guides 
the way that event is recorded, it's clear that God's approval lies on those actions. That still doesn't necessarily mean that we should imitate the actions. Think of an Old Testament example. God says to Abraham, take your son, your only son, your beloved son, Isaac, and take him up Mount Moriah and sacrifice him to me. Now there's a clear command from God. And the biblical narrative, we know the end of the story. We know that God stops Abram at the crucial point. But the biblical narrator, Moses, clearly indicates that God is pleased with Abraham's response. He is willing to do that. But we also know from the books of Moses that the Lord is not like the gods of Moab who demanded that their worshipers sacrifice their children to the Lord. So what's going on in that text? Clearly, in the context of the books of Moses, it's made clear that we should not imitate Abraham's action, but we should imitate Abraham's faith and his wholehearted trust that God can raise the dead. But you see, we need to read it in the context of the whole And then, of course, we need, as we're reading biblical narratives, to think about the transition point between the the age of promise and the age of fulfillment. There are things that we read about people doing in the Old Testament in obedience to the commands that God gave to Moses that now we realize those commands have reached a fulfillment point. Think of the various ceremonial laws, the sacrificial laws, the dietary laws that the New Testament says had a function in the Old Testament period. They set Israel off visibly and obviously from the nations, but now they've been fulfilled, and God is setting his people off from those who don't believe by faith and by the work of the Spirit, rather than by what they eat or don't eat, or whether they observe the various feasts that God gave to Israel. Of course, Acts is on this side of that transition, so we're perhaps even more inclined to say, well, if we read it in Acts, we must listen to it today, and a lot of people do, that as, as we know, that there are many uh, groups, uh, Pentecostal groups and charismatic groups that say, this is the norm. If your prayer meetings don't end with the shaking of the earth, what's the matter with your faith? Uh, if uh, you have not spoken in some unknown tongue, have you really received the gift of the Holy Spirit? If you're not being guided by visions from God, if uh, the Lord isn't breaking your apostles out of prison uh, at midnight, uh, what's the matter? Aren't you normal? Because the normal church is the church in the book of Acts. It's tempting for us, for me, maybe for you, to say, but that's misunderstanding, the book of Acts. And when we say that, we're right. But then the temptation is to go to some opposite extreme and to say, no, no, Acts is about what happened then and there. It's not about anything that relates to us as well. And that's an opposite extreme that also we need to avoid. We can't just say, well, that was then, this is now, nothing applies. I've even read people who said, well, yes, the book, in the book of Acts, the early Christians did sell their property and bring it to the apostles' feet so that the poor could have needy. And we know that the Jesus People movement, in California especially, back in the 70s or 60s or whenever it was, I'm so old I can't remember. I grew up with that. 
Anyway, uh, they did that. They, everybody sold all their property and they brought it to the church leaders and the church leaders decided when you need a new pair of pants or when you needed a, uh, a, a new pair of shoes. And that was obviously wrong, and it was. Um, but I've heard it said that means that really, you know, and, and of course they knew that Jerusalem was going to be destroyed in a few years, so it was prudent to sell their property because uh, uh, real estate values were going to tank when that happened anyway, so they might as well get rid of it all. So, you know, almost exalting the right of private property, which is a biblical principle embedded in the commandments, you shall not steal, but to the point where we almost begin to be indifferent to the needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ. Material needs across uh, the whole world. Uh, and so we can overreact to some of that uh, overreaction or, or, or that extreme that says everything in Acts needs to be duplicated. We can go to the other extreme and say nothing needs to be duplicated. So how do we, how do we weigh these two options and, and steer a course that is faithful to the book itself and its purpose? Um, well, that's what I want to do in, in these next few minutes. Boy. Run quickly. Okay. Read Acts in the light of Luke's purpose, which is, as he says at the beginning of his gospel in Luke 1, 1 through 4, to supply to believers like Theophilus, who, as I said, I think perhaps had not had direct contact with the preaching of the apostles, a researched, reliable account of what happened as Jesus inaugurated the kingdom of God through his ministry, death, resurrection, ascension, and outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Luke is not intending in this book to give us a kind of handbook about how to do church, but biblical history is never merely for the sake of informing us about the facts of past events. It's always intended to apply to us as well. It reveals what the Lord has done for His people with a view to evoking in us trust in God's faithfulness and power and gratitude for His grace that moves us then to long to glorify Him in our obedience to His commands. And in the way the Holy Spirit guides the narrators of biblical history, whether it's the prophets who wrote Samuel and Kings, or Moses as he records Genesis and the narrative portions of Exodus and Numbers, always in the way the Spirit guides and selects through them the very words that are put down to record God's great deeds, there are also clues given as to the kind of response God is looking for, the behavior and the attitudes that please God and fit His standards and those that displease God as well. So remember Luke's purpose in writing Acts. It's to tell history, but it's history that has implications for us. Read Acts in the light of Luke's Gospel. These are really two volumes of a single volume set, as we saw last night in looking at the first couple verses of Acts. Luke is looking back to the first volume, which Jesus began to do and to teach. And now in the second volume, what Jesus continues to do and to teach. It's no accident that Luke and Acts both open with a descent of the Spirit. Luke 3, the Spirit descends on Jesus to anoint Him for His unique ministry 
as the Messiah. Act 2, the Spirit descends on the church to anoint the church to bear witness to what Jesus has uniquely done as the Messiah. Jesus receives the Spirit in Luke 3, and in Luke 4 he begins to preach in the synagogue of Nazareth. The church receives the Spirit in Acts 2, and in Acts 2 Peter begins to preach and explains the implications of the Spirit's coming. In both of those sermons, the Old Testament promises and prophecies are central. Interestingly, both in Luke and in Acts, we see Jesus reaching out not only to Israel, but to Gentiles. And not just Gentiles, but to a Roman centurion. Remember the centurion who sent others to Jesus, Jewish representatives, to ask if Jesus would heal his servant? He realized he wasn't worthy to approach this great, at least, prophet. He wasn't sure what Jesus was, but he wasn't worthy. And so he asked Jesus if he would just speak a word. And Jesus, he knew, would have the power to give that kind of command. And Jesus healed his servant. Kind of preview of Cornelius, uh, whose experience we'll look at later uh, this week, uh, to whom Jesus sent Peter to preach the gospel of God's grace. It's, I think, no coincidence that from Luke 9 on, Luke is emphasizing in the gospel that Jesus is resolutely moving to Jerusalem where he will suffer. And in the middle of Acts, in the midst of Paul's third missionary journey, we find Paul making a resolution to go to Jerusalem. And people trying to dissuade Paul from going to Jerusalem because the Holy Spirit says suffering is awaiting Paul there. Now for Paul it's not death. For Paul it's imprisonment and ultimately the Lord has a further ministry for him as he appeals to Caesar and goes to Rome. But you see Paul is only a human, a sinful human is that, but he's following in the footsteps of his master. It's not a coincidence that Luke's first volume, the Gospel, ends as his second volume begins, with Jesus talking about the promise that the Father has made to send the Spirit who will come with power to make Jesus' disciples bold witnesses to his death and resurrection, the forgiveness that can be found by trusting in him. You saw that, I think, in the, in the devotions that uh, were laid out for either last evening or this morning, uh, that wonderful passage in Luke 24. So these two belong together. Uh, when I first started to teach at Westminster 25 years ago now, amazing that it was 25 years ago that uh, the Lord called me away from Beverly to, to do that. My assignment was to teach Acts and the letters of Paul, and the other prof who was working with me taught the Gospels. But you know, I found that as I studied the Acts, I couldn't really do Acts without keeping to go back into Luke's Gospel because the connections are so many there. and uh, So I'm working back, I'm sort of still working backwards uh, into Luke's Gospel. It's crucial. Read, Luke, read Acts in the light of the New Testament epistles because they are the place where God the Holy Spirit, through Paul, Peter, John, James, Jude, the letter, the author to the Hebrews, they're the place where God says, this is what you are to believe, and this is how you are to express your faith in action. Clearly, explicitly. The doctrine is taught there. The ethics, that is, the 
direction for our behavior and our attitudes are taught there. And the events of the Gospels and the book of Acts are to be read in the light of what the epistles tell us the church is to be like throughout the, this age in which we live, between the ascension and the return of Jesus. <coughs> Just like in the Old Testament, when you read through the history of David, or the history of the, the later kings, you're supposed to read it in the light of the commands of the Pentateuch, the books of Moses, because that's the template by which God is going to evaluate whether a king is faithful or unfaithful or to what degree a king may be faithful. That's the clarity. And David is up and down. You can't read the books of Samuel and think, oh, David did it, it's all fine. No, no, there are terrible things that David does. And there are a few places where David's action is kind of ambiguous, you're not sure, until you go back to the books of Moses. And there you see whether he's been a faithful or an unfaithful king. Well, so also in the book of Acts, we need to read it in the light of the epistles. And I would suggest, and I'm going to take us on a little byway for just a couple minutes here. It's not in your outline. That's confusing, but I told you now it's not in your outline, so that shouldn't be as confusing. That one of the things that we definitely need to keep in mind is the way that the letters of the New Testament make clear that something unique is taking place in the time of the Apostles. I'm thinking here of two passages, Ephesians 2, verses 20, and on into chapter 3, and then also the first couple of verses of the letter to the Hebrews. In Hebrews 2.20, Paul is describing the church in which now not only Israelites who've come to believe in Jesus, but even you, Gentiles, once strangers and aliens, alienated from God, and from his people. Now you're brought in too, and you're being built into a temple built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. That's a picture, obviously. It's an image. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. What does Paul mean by that? Well, we don't have to puzzle. Because... If we didn't have these chapter divisions, which some guy at the Reformation time put in, which is kind of helpful. I'm thankful for Robert Aitken for putting those in. But they weren't there when Paul wrote it. We would go right on from the end of chapter 2, right into chapter 3, without any break, and read about Paul reflecting on his calling as a prisoner of Christ and one who understands the mystery made known by Revelation. As he says in verse 5, this mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. How are the the apostles and prophets' foundation? They're the ones who have received the revelation that is now for us accessible in the pages of the New Testament. The foundation is laid through the apostles and the prophets. We don't need new revelation because it's complete. All we need to know to live the life of faith from now to Jesus' return, from Jesus' ascension to Jesus' return, from the death of the apostles to Jesus' return, is in the book. And Hebrews makes that point so very clearly. If you look over at Hebrews 1, verses 1 and 2, right at the very beginning, 
the writer to the Hebrews starts by talking about, in the first several chapters, about Jesus being superior as the agent of revelation through whom God has spoken. And then the agent of redemption in the center part of the book. The priest who has brought us to God through the sacrifice of himself. And then toward the end of the book, the agent of rest. The one who is bringing us into the final resting of God, into worship. But in this first part, as he starts with Revelation, you see in these first two verses, the author to the Hebrews says, "Long Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he created the world, the radiance of the glory of God, as he goes on to say, who has made purification for sins. Now, one of the principles that the author to the Hebrews uses over and over again is that what shows that Jesus is is the perfect one, who's brought perfect redemption, who's brought perfect rest, is that he only needs to do it once for it to take place for all time. Whereas in the Old Testament, the shadows were repeated over and over again, not because they were flawed in themselves, but because they were incomplete, because they were preparatory, they were were pointing forward. Priests had to be replaced generation after generation. There were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing in office to pray before the people of God. Sacrifices had to be repeated over and over and over again because no animal sacrifice could cleanse the conscience of the worshiper. But Jesus is the one and only final and eternal high priest. Jesus has offered the once-for-all sacrifice that cleanses from sin. And notice here he applies the same principle to Revelation. It's not surprising that Old Testament revelation came piecemeal for over a millennium or so, from the books of Moses to the prophecy of Malachi, roughly a thousand years, piece by piece by piece. It wasn't complete. It was always anticipating something better. We come to the New Testament. God speaks in His Son, as Hebrews 2 says in Hebrews 2, 1 through 4, that salvation spoken by the Son, commended by the apostles who heard Him, it's all within a single generation the New Testament is written. Why is that? Because we've got the final word. Because the foundation has been laid. So when in Acts we read about things that relate to the giving of new special revelation to and through the apostles, we're reading about things that lay the foundation. And we rejoice in that, And we rejoice in the fact that that's completed now. And that God has given us the full word in His Son through the New Testament Scriptures. Read Acts in the light of the Old Testament. I'm just going to illustrate that point all week, so I'm not going to elaborate on it anymore. You'll just see it over and over again. uh, That the way Luke quotes the Old Testament, the way he quotes people who quote the Old Testament, the way he alludes to Old Testament passages without formal quotations. He even uses the Old Testament formula of starting a new section of the story with, and it came to pass. A lot of our more recent English versions don't put that in that way. And it happened, or and it became, or and it occurred. Sometimes they don't even put that, anything, the equivalent of Luke's 
Chi Agenata, and it came to pass. But it's there. And what he's doing is echoing Old Testament narrative uh, as well. Read Acts in the light of its structure. Uh, you know well, I'm sure, uh, the, uh, and we've often heard that Acts 1.8, Jesus' word to his disciples at the very beginning, which I read last night, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth, really gives us a threefold template of the geographical expansion of the gospel in those early days. Jerusalem, chapters 1 through 7, closing with the martyrdom of Stephen and the persecution that Saul of Tarsus begins to foment. Uh, the scattering of believers, except the apostles, we'll come back to that, scattering of believers into Judea and Samaria, in chapters, uh, roughly chapters 8 through 12, uh, in the process, uh, even beyond Samaria, to uh, Pisidia, uh, to, uh, to uh, Syria, and to Antioch, uh, which becomes the center point from which Paul and Barnabas go out, to the ends of the earth in chapter 13 through 28. That threefold division is, uh, I think, clear and, and is helpful. Uh, although we need to remember that just because Paul gets to Rome, that doesn't mean that really the whole mission has been accomplished. It's interesting that at the very end of the book of Acts, we read about Paul preaching, but we don't hear about the outcome of his appeal. Instead, we read about Paul speaking about the Lord Jesus without hindrance. That's two words in English, one word in Greek, and that's the last word in the book of Acts. Without hindrance, unhinderedly. He's in prison. He's under house arrest. He can't move wherever he wants to go. And yet, the word is not bound. We'll come back to that at the end of the week. Threefold expansion. What I didn't see until... Years later, I read an essay by the Dutch New Testament scholar Herman Ritterboss, is that there's another threefold agenda that's embedded in Acts 9. When Jesus sends the faithful Ananias, not the one from Jerusalem who was a hypocrite, but a faithful Ananias who lived in Damascus, to Paul, to Saul, to pray for his healing, Jesus says, Saul is my chosen witness to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of the children of Israel. And that's really a kind of a design for what would happen in the rest of the book of Acts, that all kinds of people, not, all, not only all kinds of places, but all kinds of people would be reached with the gospel. Jews, certainly, but also the Samaritans who are sort of on the, the borderline between Judaism and paganism, and then Gentiles, and even the, you know, both the Gentiles who are close to Judaism as God-fearers, we'll talk a little bit more about that, and those who are coming out of raw paganism, and kings as well, it's all there, the structure. Repeated accounts. This is one way that uh, biblical narrators emphasize, notice this event. Notice this event. They'll say it over and over again. We have two narratives of creation in Genesis 1 and 2. Not because there are different sources that conflict with one another, but because Moses wants to say, look at creation from the big and universal global standpoint, climaxing in the creation of humanity, male and female in the image of God. 
And then in chapter 2, he says, now look at more from the standpoint of the creation of humanity, the ones who will be placed as God's subordinate rulers in creation in Genesis 2. Genesis 28, Abraham sends his servant off to find a wife for Isaac, and we read about all the instructions that the servant gets and how he prays and how he finds, uh, um, I'll find her, Rebecca. Yeah, yeah, she was there in the back of my mind. Uh, and she offers to water the, the, the animals. And then the servant goes with Rebecca back to her family, and he tells the story all over again. And we impatient American readers are thinking, why didn't Moses cut it short? He could have said, and he told the story see earlier in the chapter. But he doesn't, because he said, this is really important. Well, that's a biblical pattern of telling a story several times over, a little different perspective, but filling in the details to emphasize the importance of the event. Luke does that in the book of Acts, especially with three events. The outpouring of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost, promised in chapter 1, recorded in chapter 2, remembered in chapter 11, with the connection when Cornelius and his friends and relations received the Spirit in chapter 11. Peter says, remember, it was this is like that first outpouring of the Spirit that we received uh, on the day of Pentecost. And remembered again in chapter 15. The Cornelius event itself is a repeated event in that we read the narrative that Luke gives us in chapter 10, and then in chapter 11, we read again. As Peter reports to the church of Jerusalem, we read the main events of that uh, encounter in which God brought the Gentiles in chapter 11 as well. And again, in the Apostolic Council in chapter 15, Cornelius is again mentioned by Peter there. And the conversion of Paul, the seizing, the capturing of this persecutor. Luke records it in chapter 9. Twice later on, we hear Paul telling his own story in chapter 22 to the crowd in the temple, in chapter 26 before King Herod Agrippa. Again, if we were to be frugal with our papyrus and our time, we would just say, and Paul told his story. See chapter 9. I know there were no chapter divisions. I remember, but anyway. See earlier. But Luke doesn't do it that way. Under the inspiration of the Spirit, he's telling us this story so again we would see the significance of these events. The pouring out of the Spirit, the calling in of the nations, and the capture of the apostle who would be sent especially to the nations. Three milestone events in the life of the church. Well, the summaries uh, are wonderful as well. Between the great events, Luke puts these little bridges, and sometimes we're tempted to ignore the bridges, where he describes what's going on in the life of the church. They were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and the breaking of the bread and the prayer, Acts 2.42. And then he illustrates that from the rest uh, of that paragraph uh, ending out chapter 2. That's just sort of business as usual. And we might be tempted to ignore those bridge summary statements about the life of the church. But they're important. Because by those summaries, Luke is showing us that the momentous events, the outpouring of the Spirit, the healing of the lame man, the discipline of Ananias and Sapphira, the freeing of Peter from prison, these events are not just random explosions of power, but they have ongoing results in the life of the church. 
They don't appear out of the blue. But the normal pattern of church life are the context in which God sometimes did amazing things that would surprise us with His might and with His mercy. And they assure us that even when life is somewhat uneventful, and so extraordinary stuff, God is still at work. So treasure those summaries. I've given you some of them there in the references, and I don't have time to go further. And then particular summaries that I do want to mention very briefly. Wow. Very briefly. Four summaries that describe the growth of the church as the growth of the Word. Very interesting. Acts chapter 6, verse 7. After seven men are appointed, uh, called by Christ through His church, care for the material needs of some of the widows in the church in Jerusalem, the Word of God, I think the ESV, continued to increase. That's okay for a translation. But the word is that organic word, agricultural word. The word was growing. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. So also in 1224, the word was growing. And in 1349, the word was growing. Sometimes the word was growing and getting stronger. Luke, under the inspiration of the Spirit, chooses this particular way to describe the growth of the church because he wants us to see that the church grows as the word goes out. He describes the apostles at the beginning of his gospel as those who from the name were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. And of course that's why so much of the book of Acts is full of sermons. Even though sermons might be summaries and not full sermons, usually they only take a couple minutes to read, and my hunch is that Peter preached for longer than that. But they're the high points of the sermons, and when you think about the, the weighting of things in the book of Acts, roughly 30, 35, 40% of the words in the book of Acts are sermons, preached. Um, and if you count in then that there's a little bit of intro and a little bit of postlude for every sermon, even more of the text is really devoted to setting the context for and then recording and showing the results of the sermons, the preaching of, uh, of the book of Acts. And that's why, among other things, in the, in the suggested books at the end uh, of the outlines, uh, I put, and this is not just because he's a really good friend and some of your pastors, that pastored some of you, but I put Roger Wagner's book, Tongues of Flame, uh, which focuses on the preaching in Acts. It's, it's really, really a wonderful study of the, the, the sermons in Acts. Useful for preachers, absolutely, brothers, we who are preachers, but also useful for all of God's people. So there. Okay. Now, to our text for the next seven minutes. Oh, bad man. Let me read it and uh, maybe borrow a minute or two next hour, and I'll let us have our break a little different. I can do that, right? For the authorities. Yes. Okay, thanks. There, there's, there's a code. There's a codeine that's giving me that permission. Okay. Uh, Acts 1, 12 and following. No, I'm going to pick up at verse 50. No, I'm going to go to 12. I'm sorry. I just have to do this. Okay. Then they returned to Jerusalem. These are the eleven now. We've just seen Jesus ascend to heaven, and the angels have said, He'll come back, but you have a job. (laughs) 
they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas the son of James. All of these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David, concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us, and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man bought a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out, and it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akel Dama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no dwell in it, and let another take its office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness of, to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias, and they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Now, wonderful text, a rich text. Uh, let me just notice a few things here. The context for the selection of a replacement for Judas is the church at prayer. In that uh, paragraph, uh, uh, verses 12 through 14, uh, notice that Luke reminds us of the apostles that Jesus had chosen. He lists their names. The names are identical uh, in order to the list that he gave us back in his gospel, Luke 6, read Acts in the light of the gospel, except there's one missing obviously. And he's, of course, in the text that we read it, he will explain why Judas is missing. He will remind us of Judas' treachery and of Judas's death as well. So already he's setting us uh, up in a sense to say, but the number's not complete. And you notice the number is a key element here. Uh, Peter mentions in verse 17, Judas was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. And again in verse 26, Luke comments at the end that uh, Matthias was numbered with the eleven apostles. There's something very important about this number. The number must be twelve. Because as Jesus had said in the ministry, the twelve apostles would sit on twelve thrones ruling the twelve tribes of Israel. They stand as kind of the tribal heads of the people of God in its new covenant form, like the twelve sons of Israel. Jacob stood for the twelve tribes under the old covenant order. Now we know that 
the Lord has in mind to call another apostle, an apostle to the Gentiles. Some of us chatted a little bit about that last night after the session. But I'm convinced that the way the Holy Spirit guides Luke to narrate this, there's no hint that God is disapproving of the church at this point or of Peter in saying we need to have the number complete before the Spirit comes. God will call Saul. He will send him out. Actually, in a certain sense, Israel ended up with 13 tribes as well. If you recall, one tribe got no inheritance in the land. That was Levi. But there were 12 tribal allotments because both sons of Joseph received allotments, Ephraim and Manasseh. I'm not going to go anywhere with that. It's just an interesting thought. God had a baker's dozen in the Old Testament. He has a baker's dozen in the New Testament. And Saul and Paul will be sent to the nations, to the Gentiles more broadly. But notice what the church is doing in this interim between the Ascension and Pentecost. The church is praying. What are they praying for? Well, it doesn't say. Ah, true. It doesn't say here. But if you look back in Luke 11, when Jesus teaches the Lord's Prayer, and then he gives the illustrations that he gives about the Lord's Prayer, and how we can be confident in our prayer. And uh, he uses the analogy that he also used in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. But he's more specific in Luke. In Matthew, Jesus said, If you who are evil as fathers know how to give good gifts to your children, you don't give them gifts that harm them. You give them good gifts. How much more will your father give good gifts to you when you pray. That's the way it reads in Matthew. In Luke, when Jesus teaches on the Lord's Prayer, he says, if you who are evil give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? What are they praying for? They're praying for the Father to send the promise. The promised Holy Spirit. Not the Holy Spirit to regenerate them and take them out of death and into life, because they're already believers in Jesus. The Spirit's already done that work in their lives. He's already active before Pentecost, unquestionably, not only in equipping prophets and priests and kings in the Old Testament for their mission, but in bringing dead sinners out of our death and disbelief and into life. He's always done that from our fall in Adam in Eden all the way through. If there's any believer, it's because the Holy Spirit has been work at work to take dead hearts out of us and put living hearts within us. But now the Holy Spirit is going to come to distribute His gifts for the building of His church among all of His people, and the church is praying for that. And it's in that context that God moves Peter to stand up in the midst and say, there needs to be a replacement for Judas. Scripture had to be fulfilled. That's the language that we hear Jesus using over and over again in the Gospels and saying, don't you know, I have to suffer and enter into my glory. Don't you understand the Bible? It's all about my suffering and then my glory. And the apostles are obtuse, they're clueless, they don't get it. And he opens their hearts and minds, as we know, in that interim between his resurrection and his ascension to begin to understand the scriptures. And here we see the fruit of it. Peter now will say, 
Now we know Scripture had to be fulfilled. These Scriptures that he points us to in Psalm 69 and Psalm 109, which he's quoting here, talk about the betrayal of the Messiah by a close associate and that that terrible traitor had to be replaced in his position of power and authority. Peter says it has to happen. Now, how is it going to happen? Well, we need to have somebody, because the mission of an apostle is to bear witness, eyewitness testimony to the resurrection. We need to have somebody who knows Jesus well, somebody who spent his whole Jesus' earthly ministry with Jesus from the baptism of John until the ascension. So they use, it, they use that criterion and they narrow the field to these two men who are identified in verse 23, Barsabbas, Joseph Barsabbas, Justus, and Matthias. I'm just going to throw out one little speculation. Joseph Barsabbas, who is also called Justice, you notice when the lot is cast, he's the loser. Uh, why, does, why, is, why are three names given for the guy who wasn't the replacement for Judas? Ever thought about that? I'll give you my hunch. My hunch is that Theophilus and Joseph Barsabbas Justice. Justice would have been his Roman name, which means he was probably a Roman citizen. But their paths had crossed at some point. And that Luke wants Theophilus to know that even though you haven't heard a Jesus-appointed, called apostle preach, this man is a reliable eyewitness, too, to the resurrection. That's my guess. We'll find out when we get to heaven. I do want to meet this guy and find out. So what do you think after the lot went to Matthias? And I know that when we're in heaven, he'll say, that was just fine, that was the Lord's plan. I don't know what he thought at that moment. But in any case, the lot goes to Matthias at this point. Casting of lots was an Old Testament way of seeking the will of God. Proverbs 16.33 refers to it. The pagans used that as well in Jonah 1.7. That's how the lot falls to Joseph uh, to Jonah and uh, his uh, the, the seamen on his boat realize that he's the guy who's responsible for this storm. Bruce Waltke, in a very, I think, helpful book called Finding the Will of God, A Pagan Notion. A little surprising title. Finding the Will of God, A Pagan Notion. Waltke suggests that this is the last time, and it is true, this is the last time we find the church seeking the will of God by casting lots. And this is the last time, he says, because that was an Old Testament form of God guiding his church. Once the Spirit has come, he will guide us through the words that he gives through the apostles and through the wisdom that he gives to apply the word. So we don't any longer need that method of seeking God's revelation. In any case, Matthias is numbered with the apostles now and becomes another eyewitness. And as I say, Jesus will add another later on. What do we learn from all this? I've obviously abbreviated much too much, but what do we learn from all this, especially this appointment? Well, from Judas, we need to remember that places of leadership in the kingdom are places of danger. And we need to be praying for all of our pastors and our elders and our deacons that the Lord would protect us. Remember, the speaker in this second half of Acts 1 is Simon Peter. Judas betrayed Jesus. Peter denied Jesus, not once, but three times. What's the difference between Peter and Judas? 
It's not that Judas was so much worse that he betrayed Jesus and Peter only denied Jesus. Oh, come now. Jesus said, if someone denies me before people on earth, I will deny him before my Father in heaven. Peter's sin was a capital sin. The difference is, Jesus said to Peter, I have prayed for you. And when you are restored, strengthen your brothers. Peter was as weak as Judas, as guilty as Judas, but Jesus had prayed for Peter. And he prays for us. But you need to pray for your leaders. Pray for all of us who handle the word that we might not bring shame on the name of Jesus. Church leadership is not a refuge from spiritual attack, but a place of exposure and vulnerability. We learn that from Judas. But we also learn that the failure of church leaders does not put Jesus' church in jeopardy because Jesus is the good shepherd who gives gives gifts to his church. He is the shepherd present among his sheep. At various times, I've been asked by a church to preach in a week or two after their pastor has been called elsewhere, and I often turn to Hebrews 13, where in the space of two verses, the writer talks about the previous leaders of that congregation. Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their faith and imitate their faith. And then he says, remember Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's always a wonderful verse, and I've seen it on plaques on the walls, but it's wonderful to hear it in the context of Hebrews 13. Yes, you've had leaders who've been faithful in the past, but now they're going elsewhere, or perhaps they've been taken into the presence of Christ to the church triumphant by death. They are not with you, but Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And remember that he's made the promise, I will never leave you or forsake you. I think the other thing that we can see here, and this will be a nice transition to our next hour when I do give us a break in just one minute. And that is the blend that you find in Scripture between the emphasis on the objective reality of our faith, the truths in history in which our faith is grounded, and the subjective transformation that the Holy Spirit brings about as he applies those truths to us. Matthias now takes his place with the eleven to testify to objective truths. Jesus was raised from the dead. Many convincing proofs, as we saw last night. At the same time as the church is praying for the coming of the Spirit to bring to us the power beyond our own to testify to these great things. It's so easy for us to get imbalanced in this matter, I think. Many parts of the evangelical church in America focus so much on the subjective. I think of the, uh, of the, the song I grew up in at camps, among other places, Jesus lives, he lives. You ask me how I know he lives, he lives within my heart. Well, okay, true. But that's not the only way I know he lives. I know he lives because apostles gave eyewitness testimony that I've read in Scripture, that he was alive from the dead, and they put their fingers into the wounds. But sometimes we can perhaps overreact and focus so much on the objective truths of the gospel that we forget also our need for the subjective transformation by the power of the Spirit. We need both objective truth 
the witness to the resurrection, and subjective transformation, the power of the Spirit. That's what we long for, that's what we need, and that's what Jesus will use to use us to expand his kingdom in the world. Okay, let me lead us in a brief prayer, and then we'll have our coffee break. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace to us in Christ. Thank you again for speaking this word, this book of Acts to us, giving us the light in the tunnel that explains so much of the transition from Jesus' earthly ministry to the churches, the fruit of his heavenly ministry by the Spirit on earth in the planting of churches throughout the world. Father, thank you that uh, you provide leaders for your church. Protect us who lead. Protect us who have this awesome terrifying responsibility to open the Word of God to your people. Help us to do it faithfully. Help us also to adorn the Gospel with the lives that are committed to purity and truth and integrity. Only your Spirit can do that in us. We pray for all your people that our witness would be bold in words and faithful in action. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.